You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Daisy Pitkin to talk about her new book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. Daisy Pitkin has spent more than 20 years as a community and union organizer, working first in support of garment workers around the world and then for U.S. labor unions organizing industrial laundry workers. Her essays have been awarded the Montana Prize, the Disquiet Literary Prize, the New Millennium Award, and the Monique Wittig Writers Scholarship. She grew up in rural Ohio and received an MFA from the University of Arizona. Pitkin lives and writes in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she works as an organizer with an offshoot of the Union Unite. You can find her at daisypitkin.net. Thanks so much for being here, Daisy. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to talk with you. <laughs> Do you want to start us off by reading a little something? Sure. So I have an excerpt here from the second chapter of my book, which is a place where several of the threads of the book kind of come together. And that's why I chose this place to read from. The first time I talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire of 1911 was at a union training in early 2004. I got choked up and had to bite down hard on the edge of my tongue to let go the catch in my throat. I stood in front of 20 or 25 workers who were leading campaigns within the industries that were actively organizing in Phoenix iron workers, roofers, painters, and laundry workers. This was the first day of a three-day intensive training, and I was supposed to give a short history of UNITE, which was an offshoot of the legendary International Ladies Garment Workers Union. The short history I was supposed to recount was a story of dispersion, of a union chasing an industry from place to place around the world. The Triangle Fire was not necessary to this narrative, the fact of the fire, the fact that hundreds of people, mostly women and girls, jumped eight or nine stories to escape it, the sound their bodies made on impact with the sidewalk. No one was expecting to hear about these things during a weekend training. But by this time, we were a year into the campaign, and I had started thinking about the emptiness of that broader history, how it didn't feel anything like the work of organizing, how devoid it was of lives and bodies and of the often gruesome reality of industrial work. At the training, I wanted to talk about fires and about people, about women and mainly immigrant women fighting in what seemed to be echoing moments at both ends of a century. I started by saying that 100 years ago, even before the fire, garment workers were organizing in New York City and that they were doing it at first shop by small shop. The only way to force companies to pay attention at that time before workers had a federally supported process for holding union elections was to strike. So the garment workers struck. They demanded better pay and shorter hours, but also safer factories to not have to, not to, have to rent chairs to sit in, to have sewing tables moved closer to windows to make it easier to see the needles, to be able to use the toilet when they needed to, to keep the factories clear of scrap fabric and piles of lint to stop the spread of fire. The story of the fire was not necessary to the training, but it was important to unite, both to its idea of itself, its origin and significance, 
and as a reminder of the urgency and high stakes of organizing, of what can happen if we lose. The telling and retelling of the story of the fire is an easy conduit to the anger that often serves as an engine to a fight. And it works on me in exactly that way, it reminds me how monstrously inhuman it is to disregard the lives of some humans so that other humans can eke a little more out of the world. But it does something else to me too. It breaks me in a way that organizers are not really supposed to break. It's not our place to be caught up emotionally in the work of organizing outside of the righteous indignation that underlay everything we did. We were there to serve as guides, to help workers navigate their fights, which were not our fights, to win unions that were not our unions, but belonged to the workers who had fought and risked and been moved to build them. At the end of the three-day training, I and the other facilitators handed out certificates to the workers who had participated, and then we all sat together and ate beans and rice from El Pollo Loco. We were leaving the training, prepared to launch separate fights across the city and in different industries, but we'd be there for each other in solidarity, we promised, and we were. For the next several years, we showed up at each other's rallies and strike lines, marches, and meetings. When we'd finished eating, I asked if anyone had a final question or announcement, guessing someone would respond with another joke or an exaggerated call for me to just wrap it up already. For a moment, no one said anything, and then you raised your hand, Alma, a formality that brought a sudden seriousness to the room. You asked a question that stays with me still, though I don't hear it in your voice or even in Spanish anymore. It comes as a memory of my own translation. You were wondering about the will to fight, a phrase I had used in my story about the shirtwaist strikers in 1909. Las ganas de luchar, I had said. And those were the words you used too when you asked. You wanted to know what drives some people to fight while others don't or don't want to or can't. Everyone is afraid, you said. So what is it that pushes some people across the threshold of fear? Is it all rage? Is it courage? are the ones who fall down in their fear, too afraid or just not angry enough. By this time in early 2004, you and I had started calling ourselves Las Polias, the moths. At night in the motel, I was reading a book about Las Mariposas, the Mirabal sisters who worked clandestinely to oppose the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic and were nicknamed the butterflies. We joked that we were their ugly cousins grinding out our organizing one house call at a time in the dust of South Phoenix, so driven by the will to fight that we were bludgeoning ourselves against the porch light. In the years after I left the union, my fascination with moths grew. Among the things I learned is the nerve wracking fact that there is no definitive answer as to why moths are attracted to light, though people have wondered about the ill-fatedness of the habit for a long time. As is true of most idioms, like a moth to flame is shorthand for something harder to describe. In this case, an irresistible, often irrational attraction to someone or something that has the potential to lead to the desire's downfall. Most idioms work as shorthand because there is a cultural agreement on their meaning, but interpretations of the relationship described by moth to flame seem to contradict each other some placing agency with the moth as the active seeker of the flame and others with the flame 
luring the moth to its death. We know that moths use transverse orientation, a kind of celestial navigation to find their way in the dark. The leading theory regarding their attraction to light is that moths have been unable to adapt this navigational strategy to human-made points of light, that by design, moth flight works as a function of distance. They confuse our porch lights and campfires for the moon and then collide with them because they've evolved to know that orienting around the moon's light will help them get somewhere, though not ever to the moon itself. In 2012, archeologists in South Africa discovered the remnants of the oldest known campfire and dated it back 1 million years. If the leading moth to flame theory is correct, then moths have had 1 million years of human fires, of localized light to adapt their navigation and have failed to do so. How has nature not selected out the trait of mistakenly burning oneself alive? I was taken aback by your question at the end of the training, what drives a person to fight? I listened and nodded as one of the other trainers said something about struggles needing leaders and about it being the job of those leaders, of you here in this room, he said, to be courageous and to lead their coworkers through their fear. If I had tried to answer then, I think I would have said that people who fight and people who don't aren't really very different from each other, or that the difference has less to do with anger or fear and more to do with vision that some people can't imagine or haven't yet imagined what good a fight will do, can't see a version of the world that doesn't yet exist. But now having thought about this question nearly continuously since you asked it, I wonder if the will to fight is unrelated to vision or imagination, if instead it's a kind of metamorphosis, a state of being so ravenous for change that you are changed. The tightening skin tightens around the neck and body of the caterpillar, which is already walking around with parts of another future body tucked inside. The you before the fight denatures you, exploding into newness out of necessity. He must shed that tight, dry skin or die, writes Nabokov of a, of a caterpillar in its final stage. Thank you so much for reading that and I, I looked at uh, at my copy of the book and realized that that was chapter two is essentially where I had gotten to and then I had to put the book down um, and like come back to it a few days later. Um, and it was specifically uh, the the words of someone recalling like witnessing the triangle fire that I I had to like I read it and it like I felt everything inside of me kind of just like sink and then I had to like come back to it and there's so much of that uh in this book that union history and the the heavy grief filled history of organizing um and I have some, some other questions like for you about that as well, but I wanted to start with talking about Clara. So as an organizer, a lot of this book sort of seems like it, this story in particular is you coming in on the ground and like this particular story of organizing these workers in Phoenix and 
a little bit of these trainings and then you also training people in turn, but I wanted to hear a little bit about what researching like organizing history looks like to someone who comes into organizing because you don't you don't like go to school for it like you don't get to go and study past union organizing campaigns and things like that that's something you kind of have to do on your own while it's happening we I don't we can talk about like blitzes a little bit but the experience itself is a sort of blitz where things just happen and then you kind of have to you make time to figure out who came before you and a lot of this book talks about that but I was wondering what the process was like of you finding out these stories that you consider telling people during these trainings and like it isn't really a place for storytelling but what the importance is of knowing the the full range of those stories and not the ones we're told that are a few sentences long as well. Yeah. It's true that I sort of just came into this organizing campaign and was just in the thick of it immediately because that's what organizing is like. And I hope that the book gives that feeling because it's very sort of frenetic and overwhelming and you're just pushed into the, the middle of, of a campaign and the urgency of a campaign. You know, like I had a crazy, as is described in the book, a crazy sort of job interview that was not really a job interview. <laughs> Talked about organizing and then got in the car and went dumpster diving at a Target, you know, mm -hmm. just so we could assemble information that we needed to organize a place. Um, and then I went home after that and got a call a few days later and a factory in Lake Havasu City, a laundry factory was on fire. And they just said, pick up a rental car and go. And that was my introduction to the union. There wasn't you're exactly right. There's not time to sort of sit down and read about the history of, of labor organizing. Um, and I didn't know much of it going into the union. Um, I knew about unions from my family and where I grew up. And I knew about unions because when I was in college, um, there was a, a organizing drive at a hotel in the Twin Cities where I was and the management of the hotel called the INS and had some of the housekeepers who were the main activists of the union organizing drive arrested. And the city kind of rose up in support of them and um, stopped their deportation. And it was one of the most incredibly empowering moments that I had witnessed up until that point in my life. And so I knew I wanted to work in the labor movement. I knew I wanted to be an organizer, but I didn't have a lot of time to think about the history of labor in this country. And it, it is true that it's a part of organizing. We learn the story of the union and we learn to tell it to workers as they're having their first kind of organizing committee meetings as they're coming into the union. In fact, you know, I work for Workers United now, which is an offshoot of Unite, she said in, in my intro. And just two weeks ago, I had a first organizing committee meeting of among a group of workers here in Pittsburgh, where I live now. And I told the same story. I had to tell the story of the uprising of the 20,000 and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory mm -hmm. fire. But the story we tell is that abbreviated version. You know, it's like there were strikes. Um, they won in most shops in New York City, but did not 
um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which was one of the larger shirt waist factories in New York City at the time, did not acquiesce to the strikers' demands. And 11 months later, the place burned and a lot of people died. Um, and that's really the way we tell it. And sometimes if we have time, we tell the story of Claire Lemlick getting hoisted up onto that stage. Um, and you, when you tell the abbreviated version, you tell the sort of cinematic highlights. You know, it's Sally Field standing on that table holding the union sign. <laughs> it's Claire Lemlick getting this kind of anonymous woman getting hoisted up onto the stage and calling for a general strike and 15,000 people following her into the streets, you know? And I think what we do when we, when we tell that kind of abbreviated version is we, we decontextualize those moments of bravery from the deep kind of um, grinding work of organizing that has to precede it for years in order for those, those kind of blazing moments of courage to actually trigger something that's meaningful. And while I was working for the union, I didn't have time to read any of the, the history. No. And when I sat down <laughs> to start writing about it, you know, I knew that the sort of story of the Triangle Fire and of Clara Lemlick was part of like the mythos of the union. And I needed to know more about it. So I did start reading about it after I'd left um, organizing and had more time. <laughs> and what I found was there, you know, Clara Lemlick had organized strike, strike committees at nearly 500 garment shops before getting hoisted onto the stage to call for the general strike. And of course, right, it wouldn't have worked if she hadn't done all of that organizing. So I think the book really wonders a lot, thinks about what it means that we tell, we tell the story of those the brighter moments in an organizing campaign. And we often don't tell the story of the deep organizing that goes on before it and after it and underneath it. It's hard to think about those, those instances because you, in order to get people to understand what's happening, you kind of have to like tell them the the important part or what people deem is the important part. Another part of that story, you like moved back to her like previous strikes. But the other part of that was that when she was being hoisted onto that stage, it was probably as people would say, like it was an exciting moment. She was in a lot of pain because she was still dealing with her like healing from broken ribs from being beaten by anti-union protesters and people targeting them for their union organizing. Someone who was hired and, by the Garment Association to find to track her down and attack her. I mean, yeah, it was a hired thug who beat her. What you I I put down uh what you said too because it was like it really got me thinking about all of those the things that we don't hear about, which is what, you know, this, this book was in a big part. And what you had written was small firebrand of a girl spontaneously rises from an audience of thousands to call for strike and tens of thousands follow her into the street. And it's a narrative so tightly compressed that it leaves no space for anything other than awe, no room in which one might conspire to similar action. 
and it doesn't it doesn't leave exactly that like it doesn't leave room for anything but wow that's that's incredible and I don't think I have that in me um but and so it it limits people um to thinking that the the larger actions are the ones that that the big ripple becomes noticeable in are the only ones that matter in a way that's extremely harmful for the labor movement um it comes at a detriment to not talk about those other 500 strikes that came before yeah i think that's right i think it does the the more i looked into the story the more i realized that the real the important part of the story of course is it might not be the most exciting part of the story but the most important part of the story is that she was an organizer and that she was you know hitting bricks <laughs> going shop to shop organizing committees that were going to stand with her right and it does a real disservice. Like I really was um, concerned about the fact that the way we tell that story is a way that it does a disservice to the labor movement in my mind, because who can replicate that? It sounds almost as if it ac- happened by accident. This mm-hmm. super brave, very small girl, which is how she gets described almost always. There's some comment about the size of her body as well. And she's a tiny girl who gets put up on the stage and she raises her fist and says she wants to go on general strike and everyone does it, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, why, why would we tell the story in that way? A, it's not what happened. And B, it creates a space where that action is totally irreplicable. Like we, we just cannot, we, we we, it leaves no space for people to imagine themselves in that story. She was described the next day as an anonymous wisp of a girl who had been hoisted onto the stage. And in reality, of the you know 2,000 people who were crammed into Cooper Union in that meeting hall, there probably was not a single person in the space that didn't know who she was. No, her. Yeah. <laughs> is their organizer. <laughs> yeah the furthest thing from anonymous. Yeah, it's the labor movement, but it's a lot of movements of resistance that I think tend to report, especially courageous acts by women in this way. I mean, you think of Rosa Parks, you know, Mm -hmm. the story I learned probably in elementary school at some point was that she was just very tired that day. She was sort of an anonymous old lady who was too tired to move to the back of the bus and just refused, right? Of course, that's not who Rosa Parks was at all. She was a deep community organizer and she planned that action. Mm -hmm. And if she hadn't planned it ahead of time, then it wouldn't have had the ripple effect that it was set up to have. Yeah. (laughs) It's rare that we read stories like that about men, though. No, we don't. There aren't stories like that about men because men have written them about themselves. Yes, because we expect men to be courageous. It's almost as if it's it's so shocking to us that women have engaged in these acts of of bravery. We're so surprised by it that we write them as heroes and not as organizers. And that's a that's a great uh, a great segue into talking about Alma. Um, and 
who, if there, if there is going to be a hero of this story, um, I, I like to think that it's her. Um, and I wanted to, to hear a little bit about the decisions in like the design of this book and putting it together. Um, I like, as you mentioned earlier, it is very like frenetic and you kind of get dropped into the story in the same way that you were. Um, but then also the parts of the story that are taking place in Phoenix and chronicling this um, organizing campaign are written almost as like a letter to Alma, um, which added a bit of like a foreboding, like dread to it almost because you were laying out this relationship that you built with her, um, both like an organizing work relationship and a friendship. And from the get-go, I like was waiting for it to end or for something to happen that, um, that meant that it was no longer that. And you fully build the relationship and we see how it, it starts to evolve and then also fall apart. And so I just wanted to hear how you, when you did start to write this book, how you decided to tell it this way and what those, what those choices looked like and, and the connections with the moths and the fires and all of those other things as well, but the decisions to construct this story side by side with yours as well, not just this Phoenix chapter. When I first, I started writing some of the material that's in the book about 10 years ago. And it was a couple of years after I'd left organizing. I'm an organizer again now, but I was away for a while because I was really burned out and sort of heartbroken from some things that happened toward the end of the book. And I wasn't in touch with Alma anymore at all. Um, our relationship had completely fallen apart at that point. And I was working at a bar, bartending, and the bar had just recently switched from um, a, using a kind of local union laundry to wash the bar rags to a non-union laundry. And the driver who came in one day to pick up the bar rags from like the bin out back where you put them was um, this really anti-union driver who had been a driver at Alma's laundry and had been the one that would like pull out in the truck and scream at us and could, you know, use slurs and throw trash at us and things like that. And I saw the guy, he didn't recognize me, but he came into this bar where I was working. And so it was like this thinking about the union and, and what had happened between me and Alma kind of came crashing back. And I got really sick and I went to the hospital down the street from the bar. That night I got really sick and went, went to the hospital. And so I was laying on hospital sheets and in a hospital gown and pillowcases and blankets that were gonna later that night or the next day be packed onto a truck and sent up the I-10 in Arizona and delivered to Alma's factory. And she was gonna touch those blankets and sheets and we hadn't spoken in years, but I was laying in them kind of thinking about that, that intimacy that most people don't know exists, that human hands are going to touch these things. You're 
hotel sheet, the napkin you're using at the fancy restaurant, you know, like all of those things get touched by human hands. And I went, when I got out of the hospital the next day, I went home and started writing to Alma because I'd been blocking what had happened from my mind for so long that it was sort of fuzzy around the edges and I needed to kind of parse what had happened, try to remember the story. And it just came out kind of in my journal as the second person addressed to Alma. And I had no intention at the time of publishing it or putting it into a book or anything. I put it away for years. And then um, a few years ago, I, I was reconnected with Alma and I found the letters and there they were just kind of in the second person voice. And I've, they're in, they, that was the material that sort of initiated the, the book, the project of the book. And I chose to keep them in second person, I think, because it allows for the intimacy that exists in an organizing campaign. It creates that intimacy, I think, for the reader or invites the reader into the space of that intimacy. And part of the book is about solidarity, what it is and kind of how and when it gets built between people. And I think it really exists in those moments of sort of the, the banal parts of intimacy that get created on an organizing campaign, like where you're driving around for 12 hours in a car together and you're like making copies at Kinko's and you're getting out the folding chairs for an organizing committee meeting, that stuff, like that's where solidarity really gets built. So I didn't really know how, how to write the book without addressing it to Alma for, for a bunch of those reasons. It's not quite a memoir. It's uh... It is, it's nonfiction. It's, um, it is like a chronicle of this time, but aside from the fact that they were there and they, they brought themselves into this story, how did you decide that the moths needed to exist as this through line? Like I said, aside from the fact that, that they wouldn't let up (laughs) and they, and they, they they made it, uh, they forced their way in there. To, in a certain way because like it could have it could have even been you know like a, a memoir written um like as this letter to Alma or this long series of letters chronicling this experience but also I think it was so important to in those interweaving chapters break open Clara's story and everyone else's Fania's story everybody who was a part of these garment working unions to make space for people to see what these smaller actions can create and lead to. So why why did you think that it was necessary to kind of break it up in that way or to take this opportunity to break open those stories that we only hear the the final line of? You know, those those two pieces, the moths who kind of force their way into the book, and then those stories that are of the historical stories that are meaningful to the union <laughs> that, I, that I worked for. Um, I, think, I think they're there because the history pieces are there because I'm really, I wanna make a point about writing the deeper stories of women who are struggling, not just to form unions and the hard organizing work they did day in and day out, to sort of 
recontextualize the stories of their heroism, but also tell the stories of the fights that they had inside the union so that their voices were heard, kind of forcing a sort of internal democracy inside the union itself. Um, and I think that's a really important question in the book for the labor movement. Um, what, you know, what, what can we do inside of the labor movement to make sure that a groundswell of workers um, have their, that their voices inside the institution, the organization itself really means something. I think it's a challenge that we're facing that's, um, that is sort of coming to a head in national union after national union right now at this moment. And it's something that's important to me. Um, I also think that the stories from those moments in history earlier in the last century and what's happening right now in terms of the right to organize is sort of eerily similar. Where there are like these bookends, both ends of the century where labor law is so broken and loopholed at this point that it is nearly impossible to win a union. Even if a majority of workers strongly voice in their workplace that they would like to have a union, corporations are able to use labor law to push back, to delay, to break unions. It happens all the time. Um, you know, we look at Starbucks right now, Amazon, Kellogg's, the mine workers, it's, um, you see it in headlines almost daily. So the right to organize right now is almost in the same state that it was when Clara Lemlick was leading those massive strikes across New York City. And I, so I think it's important to sort of look at those, those two moments on both ends of the century and think about what it's going to take for us to organize and revitalize the labor movement, which I think is absolutely critical for any pathway toward liberation. We have to, there must be a labor movement that is strong and growing and militant. And the moths are there. <laughs> did you ask about the moths too? <laughs> are you more I did. And I feel, well, no, I feel like people will, um, like people will have to read to fully understand, uh, one how many of them there were and the just the the coincidence like of the timing and everything <laughs> um I've kind of like I made notes about a lot of the like the themes throughout the book but I mean the themes of the book are are organizing and solidarity and it's a little bit I find it kind of hard to come at objectively because having been involved in some organizing recently, like I didn't come into the book with like zero knowledge, which sometimes like with some, I can find that easier sometimes to, uh, to come into something with no sort of idea about uh, the, the world itself and kind of take everything with like deference to the person telling you about it, who must know more about it. Like I said, in the beginning too, like there everything in this book hit me differently because I had recently been a part of it in an organizing campaign and uh, bargaining a contract and all of these things. So it, there were so many things that you talked about that are just in my head now. And like I said, I was talking to uh, like some of our other organizers. And um, one of the things that 
has really been sitting with me and you get to it sort of at the end of the book and it's something you could only, and you can talk about this, but I'm sure find after writing all of this down as you kind of live back through it and you've had some space from it. You talk a lot about the manipulative nature of organizing and some of the things you experienced um, in Phoenix. And another thing was that I wrote down as well, there's no real space or time that is free from intimidation inside the dynamic of trying to build power to be used against your boss at a job you need in order to live. There's so much space in labor organizing specifically that like we don't look into and we don't consider one because it's a blitz not just in the blitz stage but all around like you said it's moving so fast and there's not a lot of room to say hold on let's think about this real quick or let's take a beat to to pause which seemed to happen a lot once unite merged with here which people can get the full story of by reading but when you when you came under the uh the umbrella of now like two different organizations with essentially the same goal but very different methods of getting there you kind of just ran into a like a wall of sorts of how to move forward and so I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about about that idea of what what lines are worth crossing and you think that there is one way to organize like if you're organizing there's a way to organize and that's the way that the only way to do it like you have these steps in every industry in every place with all these different people it's going to be different that mold is not going to work for everyone because everybody's circumstances and needs are different um and so I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about navigating that and um and what that process was like i didn't know that unite the union that i was working for had a culture around the organizing model that we were using because you're right there are, there are steps to an organizing campaign and it's pretty true that no matter the union you work for those are the steps you undertake to form a union in a workplace and to, as an organizer, as a paid staff organizer, to help guide a group of workers through that, that those steps. The steps are the same, but the culture I learned was there, it varies from union to union. So when I was organizing with Unite, I didn't have to, any time to reflect right, because we were so busy. Yeah. Um, but I also, it's hard to know that you're operating inside of a culture until you come into contact with a different organizing culture. So I didn't, I, I didn't spend any time thinking about it. I was not at all aware or self-aware of the culture in which I was operating. And there was one, um, of course. And then <laughs> the two unions merged and HERE had a very different organizing culture. Um, and I think that it made me see the culture that I was, it, it made me aware of, it made visible the culture in which I had been operating. And there's a lot of conflict that came from that merger in the book, um, not because either side was um, terrible or wrong or bad people, or there were two really radically different organizing cultures that came into conflict with each other. And there's that question in the book from the excerpt that I was reading about, you know, what, why some people fight 
what is it that gives some some people and not others the will to fight and the cultures the two different organizing cultures i think answered that question in different ways and it was alarming to me as an organizer mm-hmm. um, one one of the cultures would answer that question that people fight because they trust us as their leaders they trust us enough to sort of follow us through the steps as guides and I think the other, Unite would have answered the question that people fight because they are so upset, they're angry, they're outraged at their conditions at work, and they're outraged enough that it sort of puts them past the tipping point of their own fear, right? Their anger, which is a powerful emotion, powerful enough sometimes to get people across that threshold of fear. So those are two pretty different reasons for you know, answering why it is that some people have the will to fight. And I think connecting back to the moths, the re- one, of the, one of the things the moths did in the book was allow me the space to come to another idea. And the other idea is that people, they don't fight because they're following organizers as leaders and they don't fight necessarily purely out of anger. I think people fight and can sustain a fight, which is what you have to do if you wanna win a union because they witness their own ability to fight. They are witness to their own capacity to fight and to collectively fight with their coworkers. And that changes them, right? And it's a kind of metamorphosis or, you know, not to be too cliche about it, but being in a fight changes you and it grows your capacity to keep fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in my experience as an organizer, that's what I, that's what I saw happening that Organizing is a transformative experience. And as I think, I think unions don't, at least the unions that I've worked for, haven't, haven't yet figured out how to um, sort of harness the energy that comes from that transformation and make it meaningful inside the union itself. Um, and I hope we do. I hope, I hope we figure that out because I think it's really powerful. And it's the stuff that like a a community of resistance can get built on. And inside, like trying to figure that out. um, I, I also loved the, especially toward, like I said, the end of the book, when you're starting to, like when you had the time to reflect on things, you raised a lot of questions that I really appreciated and that I, can now like that are now sitting in my brain <laughs> to, to sit with and think about um which and we they're not like questions that we can answer here at all but I wanted to uh to talk about them and just like open a little space for them one of which was the slipperiness of union building pronouns considering the fact that you as a union worker were not a a worker in the space that you were organizing. And so like the slipperiness and of any organization that comes in to support another or facilitate at all, but you get into like, we are doing this and like, or you and I and, and they, and all of these, it's so, it's just messy. But the, the recognition of that it's not that like I wasn't expecting it, but I wasn't 
I wasn't looking for it as I was reading. And the fact that you acknowledged it and brought it to the center of this book, I thought was really beautiful. I was just wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that or if you've had any more thoughts about it since writing it or since it occurred to you or it's been bouncing around in your head. Think about it every day. I'm a, I'm a paid staff organizer still, um, or again, I guess. And <laughs> so in, in my organizing life, I think about it every day. What, um, you know, I'm not a member of the union that I work for. I'm, a, I'm paid staff of the union. So I am paid to help people uh, fight for their own unions. And they take, they are risking their livelihood to form a union. And there's a power imbalance. And I think that as staff organizers, we're not asked or taught or trained or often given space in which to think about that. And anytime there is a, there's sort of a, a node of power or a place where power is accumulated inside of an organization or an institution, and it goes uninterrogated, I think we could do better. And paid staff organizers are a position of power inside of a union. The words we use, the stories we tell, the conversations we have give shape to the organization that ends up being built by workers themselves, right? We create parameters, even sort of um, the limits of what people can imagine is possible. I think they get created all the time just through interactions that organizers have with workers. And we ought to be able to talk about that. We ought to be able to sort of lay it bare and think about what it means to have, to have staff organizers who I think are necessary on a lot of organizing drives, right? But to think about that role, and it's a role of expertise. Like I've been union organizer now for 20 years, and I know about the mistakes that you can make in the process of forming a union. And I try to help groups of workers avoid them, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a position of expertise. And I think in order for it to be transparent and not to be a position of that holds power that workers don't have access to, the question is how can we democratize the expertise of paid staff inside unions as quickly as possible? That should be our role is to how do I how do I allow workers to access the expertise that I hold that other you know communications people and researchers and other paid positions in the union, how do we allow for our expertise to be a conduit for democracy inside the union instead of just be a sort of position of, of power that we end up holding that we're not really accountable for. I, want, I hope that the book asks that question kind of loudly enough that people will think about it because I think it's crucial for the next steps in a labor movement that I hope is kind of growing and being revitalized. I think it's a crucial thing to think about. On that note, I want to, we can, we can end on this because I feel like it'll be a, a, a nice sort of little bookend with some advice, hopefully, and a hope for that labor movement that is burning bright and hopefully uh, growing larger, which you had a, a quote from Fania Cohn um, 
in here, which was that it is not the work that broke me down, but rather the atmosphere that surrounded me, which was when was so that that would have been said like in what the 1950s yeah mm -hmm. we are in a much different world now with like we have a much different atmosphere that and like so many other things that have made their way into that atmosphere so that was the first like the first part of this and then the second was that something that you said in the the last like I think the afterward that was one of my other favorite parts of this which was that when you worked for Unite and then Unite here and then Workers United SCIU you were taught and so believed that anger is the primary emotion that drives people to fight and the only one strong enough to overcome fear which uh we talked about just a minute ago too but that differently than anger care is another emotion involved here and it's one that is regenerative um and that it can it can feed that transformation that you were talking about where when you see your capacity for change it can continue to fuel you and if people are caring for um themselves and the people around them like solidarity moves into that as well i thought maybe we could end on just some ideas for ways to renew that sense of care and and things that we can do in our labor environments life environments that will help renew that care and a sense of solidarity not just like among workers but it, it has to start on just a human level too because we end up having to say that when we, we are we're already in the the labor movement and you say these people are human beings and that's the the reason you have to give to fight but we can start there too we can start there before we get to having to fight yes i think there's that there is that bigger vision of care what does it mean to live in a community that cares for where the you know the members of the community care for each other what does it mean to create systems of kind of mutual aid inside the world so that we rely on each other and so that our um our connectivity is made visible by systems of care right it's manifested through systems of care i'm interested in that bigger question i think in the labor movement you know we the language that we use the ways we communicate about the union during organizing drives kind of um it, sometimes it um it mirrors the language that the that exists in sort of the capitalistic world right and i i think that what i mean by care at that moment in the book is that I think it's important for us to realize when we're building a union, and maybe you felt this in your own organizing drive, when you're building a union, you're not building it in contrast to power that the boss has. The boss meaning the, just sort of the word that we use to refer to employers in a lot of organizing drives, right? It's not like the boss has a bunch of power and we're gonna organize a union and then take power away from the boss. That's not really the way it works. We're building something new that has a new, that 
that is um, arises from its own sort of original power, which is the collective, right? It's a different substance from the power that the boss has. In fact, we don't want anything to do with the power that the boss has. We want to build our mm -hmm. own power, right? Yeah. And that power should be built around a system of care. And in order to do that, we have to think, we, I think we need to think and be aware all the time about the dynamics of that collective power, the language we use to describe it, the ways we communicate with each other about it, the way that we're supporting each other all the time through it, because then we're really building something that can't be torn apart by any employer or multi-billion dollar corporation or um, the other systems of oppression that are so deeply entwined with capitalism, right? Then we're building something that truly exists separate from all of that. And I think that's what I'm really interested in figuring out how the labor movement can, can enact that through a system of care. I don't have a, I don't have like a concrete answer to it, like the step-by-step -step guide for how to build a union in that way. But I think collectively, I'd be interested in all of us thinking about it. Um, yeah, every and that's, time the union. Yeah, and that's so much of uh, of what I loved so much about this book is that it didn't it didn't have answers um, because, like you said, there are those those steps that you take as an organizer to like organize and build a campaign. Um, like there are building blocks, but it will require everyone's care and attention to the needs of the people that they're serving um, to figure that out and figure out ways to either make that system better or more malleable um, to, to fit everyone's needs. Like you said that you hope that that, that question of sitting with those pronouns um, like was asked loud enough. Like, I think that's an important thing that this book and other books like it raising questions like this are trying to do which is to force people to think about these questions because it is your job as an organizer to assist but you you can't you also can't help people unless they know what they need and want and have interrogated that too and so i believe that it does ask the questions loudly enough um and I, I think that um, allowing like the space to think about it will help bring about that change and that understanding amongst organizers and like the workers in the labor movement who are trying to create that, that spark. And hopefully we will, I'm going to do it. We will fly to it like moths to a flame. I had to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because I did love the moths and I loved learning about like the moths too. And it, I mean, like you said, you hoped it wasn't too like too cheesy or anything, but sometimes like if it keeps happening and it works, like you have to, you have to interrogate it. Yeah. The moths and, really were everywhere. They were, un, they were just sort of an undeniable part of the campaign. So I didn't think I could write about the campaign without them. Without them. Yeah. yeah. But also then in the years after I left organizing, I didn't really want to think about organizing. 
I was burned mm-hmm. out and heartbroken. And I, I just, I sort of pushed it out of my mind. Then I started taking like art classes at the community college and everything I was doing had to do with moths. Like I, and I was sort of pretending still that it was a way of looking away from the labor movement when really yeah. what I was doing was, you know, thinking hard about it. <laughs> yeah. So they just became twinned for me in my mind, the mm-hmm. questions about moths and their weird biology and mythology and, um, and, um, and thinking about the labor movement. So <laughs> I'm glad, <laughs> glad to hear that, that it works in some ways. <laughs> It, it definitely works. And uh, I'm very excited for everyone at Skylight to be able to get their hands uh, on this beautiful book. And it will be on our shelves when it comes out. And we'll have a, uh, a link to this episode so people can find it as well. Again, for all of our listeners, uh, my guest today was Daisy Pitkin. And we were talking about On the Line a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. You can buy the book at Skylight or on our website at skylightbooks.com. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.